I believe everyone has a story to tell. And I believe everyone deserves a little pampering. Welcome to Manny's with Grannies. I'm your host, Tiffany Marino. Join me while I sit down with a woman over 70 and get to know her while giving her a manicure. And this is just all about you. We're just here for you and... I that just, makes me nervous. I know, but it's not easy. No, no, it's mm-hmm. going to be great. And, you know, the more open you are with me, mm-hmm. the better the episode's going to turn mm-hmm. out. And this is something for your kids and well, for your family. I'll tell you what, I prayed and prayed and prayed about this because I know it's my life and I know it's my story, nobody else's, but I want other people to see how God worked in my life the whole time from the time I was born until this day. So that's what I want. I like that, okay. I like that perspective. All right, I have a little opening I'm gonna do. Welcome to this episode of Manny's with Grannies. Today I'm in the home of Joyce. I met Joyce through her son, Todd, who reached out to us through our website. Joyce, thank you for meeting with me today. You're welcome, it's my pleasure. We can take your hands out of here. So I heard that tomorrow's a big day. I'm going to be 87 years old. Can you believe it? I really can't. You have a very young spirit. You seem nowhere near 87 years old. How does it feel to be 87? I'm 87 years young, I should say. You're right. Yes, yes. Well, thank you for correcting me on that. Well, my father was quite a man for all these different little sayings, and he had one that said, age is a state of mind. What kind of state of mind are you feeling these days? I'm feeling blessed, extremely blessed. Before we got started, you were telling me about your kids and the names you have for them. What were they again? I have been blessed with four children. Tammy is my oldest, and her aunt called her Tammy Amy from Miami. Terry is my next little girl, and she's Terry Toothpick because she was always so tiny. And then along came Todd, and he was Todd Arundun, and then came the baby, Troy, and he was Troy Boy. I love it. That's so cute. You can tell just from those fun nicknames that you must have been a fun mom. We had fun. We laughed a lot. I really wanted to tell you how I got to that point of being a mother, though. I'd love to hear about it. Well, I was born in Cable Hollow, which is just a little community above Akeley, Pennsylvania. And I was born at home in a house that my father built. And my father had been in Ferndale, Michigan, working when the Depression hit. They came back to Pennsylvania and needed to have a place to live. And some friends of theirs lend them their home until my dad built a house on some property that my mother owned. And anyway, it was so cold, it was winter, and he was working out there, and in order to put the shingles on the roof, he had this little shed, and he had a fire growing in there. And so he would warm the shingles up and then hurry up on the roof and put them on. Sometimes it was in the dark, and so it was quite a big effort that he did to get this home ready for his family. That was in probably 31 Well, about 1936, now he had two daughters. One was born in New York State. One was born in Michigan. 
And then in 1936, he had another daughter born in Pennsylvania, and he says, I'm not moving again. So that was it. It was just the three of us girls. I was born on my one sister's eighth birthday. My other one was 14 years old when I was born. Even though the difference in the ages, we were all very, very close, and we had happy, happy childhood. But then when I was four years old, my mother passed away. It was a difficult time, and my father, being a young man of 40, he was having difficulty just taking care of me when my older sister was going to be going off to nurse's training, and my other sister was, you know, 13 years old or so, and it was just a really rough time. He did decide to remarry, and we moved to Russell, Pennsylvania, but it left me without hardly any memories of my mother. And so it was through my sisters that I learned what a wonderful woman that my mother really was. There wasn't anybody that I talked to that didn't have wonderful things to say about her. And I've always felt so sad that I never had a chance to know this woman. But I'll meet her again. I'll meet her again. I grew up in Russell and had a wonderful time being a, a brat being a kid and riding my bike all over town and playing cowboys and Indians with my neighbor kids and had a wonderful, wonderful girlfriend. She was my first girlfriend. We were probably four and five when we first got together. And we just had the best time together. We just, you know, we're still friends today. We still talk today. I only lived two houses from the school, so I could walk to school every day and and would come home and eat tomato soup for lunch and, you know, all those fun things. But this friend of mine, Vivian, we had so many fun days. And sometimes she was at my house and sometimes we were at her house. And she had a crick in the back of her house. And we went out there and one of the rules was no glass. Well, guess who took glass? And guess who dropped it? And guess who cut their thumb? Oh, no. And so, anyway, my dad had to take me to the doctor. You couldn't go to the hospital in those days. So I had to go to the doctor, and he taped it all up and everything. But I still have the scar today, and it's a C. And the C, my father said, was for being careless. So that's why I'm carved with having a C. <laughs> that was my dad. Yeah, he was great. He was a carpenter. And in those days, they used those planers that made the, the long curls, you know, the oh gosh, yeah. all those wood shavings were so fun. And I, I loved to go out there and just sit and watch my dad. And he'd give me hammer and nails, and he'd give me shavings, and we'd make me dolls. He made me all kinds of doll furniture and all kinds of fun stuff like that. It was a fun childhood, but then... In Russell, they built a roller skating rink. I was sixth grade, I think, then. And oh my goodness, what a time that was. That was so much fun. And all my junior high, all my senior high days, it was probably sometimes three times a week I would be up to the roller rink skating. And I still have my skates. When's the last time you put the skates on? Oh, oh golly, I don't know. I don't know. I can't even tell you. The Russell roller rink closed, thank goodness. <laughs> and then I didn't feel bad about not going. Yeah, it was it was fun. Have met so many fun people and everything there. It was great. Another girlfriend was dating this guy 
His name was Gail. Well, first time he dated her, he stopped at my house to find out where she lived. And I was dating this other young man that was just, oh, he was a really nice guy. Long story short, she married the one I was dating, and I married the one she was dating. <laughs> Gil was in the Navy, and he was coming home on weekends, and I was working in Jamestown. Way back then, it was 1955, 56, not everybody had cars. I didn't have a car. So in order to work, I had to live in Jamestown. I was only 17 when I graduated, and here I was living in Jamestown. So I was working this day, and all of a sudden along comes this handsome dude walking by where I was working, and he says, hi, how are you? Would you like to go out? And <laughs> and the rest is history. Yeah, <laughs> He was, like I said, he was in the Navy, and he was coming home every weekend from Brooklyn until he was signed up in Newfoundland. So we communicated constantly. We wrote all the time, and once in a while, he would call. This one day, he called, and he says, I'd like to come home and stake my claim on you. That's how he put it. That's how he proposed to me. But the best part is, he reversed the charges. It cost me $9 to say yes. <laughs> Don't you just love it? <laughs> oh, yeah. I never let him forget it. <laughs> We weren't sure when he was coming home to get married. He was still in Newfoundland, and we wanted to get married before he was out of the Navy so that we could get a little spousal support and maybe buy some furniture with it. He finally was able to set a time, and we had one week to prepare for the wedding. So we did it, April 6, 1957. I was so excited. I was so in love, and I was so excited, and I missed him so much. And he was only home a week before we got married, and then a week after, and then he was gone again for six months. And the day that we got married, it rained. And by the time we got out of the church that night at 7 o'clock, we were married, and lo and behold, it was snowing. Well, then we went to the reception, which was at my landlord's place in Lakewood, right on the lake, and it snowed harder. Well, we had a wonderful reception and had such a good time. And we went out to get in the car because we were going back up to my apartment in Jamestown. And lo and behold, we went out there and the car was backfiring and carrying on just absolutely horrible. And it was snowing. I mean, it, you could hardly see it was snowing so hard. The car was just going, bup, 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 you know, just all these horrible noises. There was something drastically wrong. We found an all-night garage and at 3 o'clock on my wedding night, I was standing in a cold, wet garage with no car. So my father-in-law came up and his uncle, and we got another car, and we finally ended up up to my apartment. Well, needless to say, we never got on a honeymoon. It was the worst snowstorm of the year. Like I said, we never got on the honeymoon until my daughter, Terry, my second daughter, was nine months old. So... But he was a good husband and a good father, that's for sure. When he came home from the service, then he went back to work at MRC, and it was a hard shift that he worked. He was a boiler tech. He was working the shifts that the other guys had off, which meant he worked six days a week. He worked Sunday and Monday days, Tuesday and Wednesday afternoons, and Thursday and Friday nights. And that's how we lived for 31 years. It was very difficult on him. 
It was difficult on me. It was difficult on the kids. But we had such good times, such good fun when everybody was there, you know. It was really good. We lived in that house for 51 years there in Chicago. Were you working during that time? I was raising kids, so I needed to be home. So I babysat a lot. One time I had 13 kids after school babysitting. <laughs> I babysat for a lot of time. But then as my kids got older, well, then I finally did. But there's something I wanted to tell you about when I was growing up. I remember VJ Day in 1945. I remember the whistles blowing and the people coming out. I mean, we just lived in a little town there. And the people coming out onto the street and everybody was clapping and shouting and there were horns blowing and there's one guy that had a trumpet and he was out there just blowing it like mad the war was over how old were you then i would have been nine did you understand no i don't think i did i just remember I, everybody was so happy and they were crying and the boys were coming home do you remember the feeling you got from it yeah i remember feeling excited because everybody else was, you know. But to why I was, I think it was just contagious. It was just happy contagion. And then the other thing that I remember growing up, and I'm not sure if I was a junior or if I was a senior, but it was in 1953, and it was when Queen Elizabeth had her coronation, and we got our first TV. I was permitted to stay home and watch it on TV. Did your parents have some kind of ties to the UK that they... No, no. I think it was just history. I think it was just history being made and the possibility of us being able to see it. Because before we'd always, you know, had our radio and listened to Perry Como and Dinah Shore on the radio and serial things that were on like The Shadow and The Green Hornet. But yeah, it was good. I grew up in the church and was always part of the youth group, and we went all over and went to Youth for Christ and everything and had such good times with the kids. But back to my kids, oh, honestly, we had more fun. It was a crazy house. <laughs> it was a fun house, I hope. How long were you married before you had kids? Well, we got married April 6th. He came home in October, and I got pregnant in November. <laughs> We were married a year by the time Tammy was born. She was born in August. Do you remember how you felt when you found out you were pregnant the first time? Oh, it's funny you mentioned that because that was one of the things that throughout my life up to that point, the thing that I wanted more than anything else was to be a mother. And I think that was because I didn't know mine. And I wanted to be a mother. And when I held that first child in my arms when Tammy was born, it was just such a blessing. I mean, it was just like I just cried because I was so thrilled at the privilege and the honor and the blessing of being a mother and the responsibility. It was just beautiful. It was wonderful. It was a wonderful feeling. But the thing of it is, I didn't feel that just with Tammy. I did with every one of them. You still have that wonderful, like, wow, Lord, you gave me this child, you know, it's just awesome. <laughs> was your husband the first person you told that you were pregnant? Oh, absolutely. Who was next after that? I think his mother. Do you remember her reaction? Already? <laughs> <laughs> so soon? 
<laughs> I mean, he had just gotten home. My dad had all kinds of grandchildren. And my poor stepmother, she had a terrible time remembering all the names because my sister's kids were Tim and Tom. And then I had Tammy, Terry, Todd, and Troy. Did you and your sister ever talk about? No. <laughs> and there's a funny story about when I was pregnant for Troy, the, my youngest one, the neighbor kids were over. They had five kids, and I had the three at the time, you know, and was pregnant for the fourth one. And they were trying to help us decide what we were going to name this baby if it was a boy. Well, we had all kinds of teas picked out because we had three of them already. They had it in a hat, and we were supposed to pick one out. Gail and I put our hand together and went in and picked this out, and it was Troy. All of them were Troy. They had changed <laughs> They put all Troy in it. Who wanted Troy so bad? I don't know. One of the kids from Aggressive Way, we did, I guess. I don't know, but it was just so funny. We laughed. I said, okay, he's going to be Troy. When he was born, Troy had red hair, and Gil did not like red hair. And so I was just barely coming out of it, and I didn't know what I had or anything yet. And my father-in-law came in, and he was just howling. He was laughing so hard, laughing and laughing and laughing. And I said, what? What did I have? What is it? And he says, it's a boy, and it's got red hair. <laughs> and Troy did, had red hair. And it was really, really red. So we changed his name right then and there. If it was a boy, it was going to be Troy Charles. But we changed his name to Troy Howard because that was Grandpa's name, and so he was always Troy Howie. Are your other kids named after anyone? Tammy is named after my sister's middle name, and Terry is named after her dad, Terry Gale. Todd is named after his dad's middle name. Do you know how your name was chosen? I don't know, but when my dad remarried, my stepmother had two daughters, and one of them's name was Joyce. <laughs> so we had Big Joyce and Little Joyce. Who was I, Big Joyce? And she was Big Joyce, and I was Little Joyce because I was a lot younger. They were all older girls. How do you think she felt about being called Big Joyce? Big Joyce wasn't the problem, I don't think. It was just the fact that I was a little pest. It was hard for them to accept this kid coming into their life, their family. Did you end up ever having a relationship with your stepsisters? Oh, yeah, I did, yeah. What do you think it took to overcome the obstacles that they had? Age, growing up, maturing, finding out I wasn't a threat. Yeah. We had... Lots of fun at home with the kids. We had all kinds of crazy things that we did. Four kids in the house sometimes. And you know, Gail wasn't home two nights a week. Sometimes they just drive you crazy. And I'd say, get your coats on and go run around the house three times. And they would. And they thought it was hilarious. They thought it was the funniest thing. Little did they know that they were running off all their energy and everything and calming down. They'd come in and they were a lot better <laughs> We had other things like they were we were driving in the car and they would be carrying on and be just harassing each other and I'd look at them over my glasses and they'd say, "Uh-oh, mom's got the hairy eyeball." <laughs> so, they knew the hairy eyeball. We had fun. We had a good time. And the there was cooking for everybody. You never knew how many people were going to be there. 
because they brought their friends to their home. Their, our house was open. And we did canning. We always had huge gardens. And so we just had so many tomatoes. And we were talking about it because we made canned tomato sauce, or we call it spaghetti sauce, just the other day. And it was nothing to can like a hundred or more jars of spaghetti sauce, not a bit, and salsa and stewed tomatoes. And we had corn and we had Swiss chard. And oh my gosh, I could tell you all, with string beans up to Zook. Gil was a wonderful gardener. He really was. He was the one that had the gardens and he did a great job. We went from little to great big ones. He'd get that old tiller and he'd go out there and work. After being in the boiler house all day, that was a treat for him to out there. So it was always a neat and nice looking garden. God gives you different gifts. And one of the gifts that he gave me at that time in my life was hospitality. And when your home is open, you just get blessed over and over and over again. But after all, my kids were pretty grown. Troy was 11. I decided I had enough babysitting. It was time to reach out a little we had kids going to college, and we wanted to help them out, and Troy and Todd were still high school and grade school, and so I went to work for a while at a factory down there in Lawringers, and didn't work there very long, and I got laid off, and I thought, well, yeah, well, you know what? That unemployment is false security. So I applied at Bonton. Bonton was the place to be. So I went to work at Bonton, and I worked in the women's section. I just was having the best time helping ladies find the right color to go with the right sweater, and the guys that come in that didn't have any diddly-doo what they were after, and just helping them all, and it was just so fun. And then there was a job that came up in Elizabeth Arden in the cosmetic department. The cosmetic department was right up in front. Everybody all dressed up and everybody all decked out and all their makeup and everything. And here was this frumpy old thing that never wore any makeup or anything and barely had enough decent clothes to work at Bonton in the women's department. So I thought, you know what? I'm going to apply for it. I got it. I had a ball. It was just so much fun. It ended up that I just did so well there. I'm going to toot my horn. But I did. I did really, really well. I was consultant of the year a couple of times, and I went from part-time to full-time. It was wonderful. And I made big bucks. I made really, really big bucks because I was selling so much of it. I was having a ball. But the thing of it is... I was selling things to people who didn't need it, and it began to bother me. I'm trying to get that woman who doesn't have two nickels to rub together, and she's here in the cosmetic department, and I'm selling her some cream that, sure, it would be really nice for her, but she really didn't need it. And it just really, really began to bother me, and I didn't know what was going on. Well, one day, my girlfriend walked by, and she stopped to say hello to me because I was right out front. And she was just exhausted. And I said, what's going on? And she says, I'm just so tired out. I've got two or three part-time jobs. Want one? And I said, I, I don't know. What are you offering here? It was a 10-hour position at the DA's office in a new program called the Victim Witness Program. And I thought, oh, I would be helping people instead of covering up things. So I said, you know what? Maybe that's what God wants me to do. 
So I said, I'll take it. Well, 10 hours a week, that wasn't very much. And of course, it was a pay cut too. So I took another job with the, was the woman's center then. It's the safe place now. It was working with domestic violence and sexual assault. So I was doing that, which so often it happened to be the case with some of my victims and the witnesses. And I worked with DUI and everything. Eventually, it came to be a full-time job. And I was able to convince the judge that a victim impact panel would be very good for the DUI cases that were in Warren County, because we seem to have quite a few. And the victim impact panel is a panel of people who have had experience with DUIs. Sometimes they have been hurt themselves and sometimes they have deaths. It's a group of people who get up in front of DUI offenders and tell their story in a non-accusatory way, just tell their story about how their life was affected by a DUI crash. It's never a DUI accident. It's always a crash. They always have the choice of not driving while they're under the influence. So the victim impact panel is still in place. They're still doing it. Our program won all kinds of state awards. It was really good. Some of the victims that I worked with were so crushed by it that it was just obvious that we needed some grief support groups as well. Not all of them lost loved ones, but some of them lost other things. One of the gentlemen that was on it lost control of one leg. He has to wear braces and everything else now and has had, I can't tell you how many tons of surgery. And he's just lost so much as far as his life with his job and his life with his children and his wife. And these things need to be brought out so that the offenders can really understand what their actions have caused. So did you start a grief group? We started several grief groups. We had some where we opened them up to the public and other people were coming from the community. And then we had some that were just from the victims that were going through the court system. It was good. My funnest time is with my 12 grandchildren. I have 17 great-grandchildren, so I am very, very blessed. And I just love them. Oh, my gosh, they are so fun. And they call me Grandma Great. Maybe you saw the sign when you came in the house that says, I love you to the moon and back, because that's been our little mantra with all the kids. I love you. How much? I love you to the moon and back. Would you like a nail sticker? You know, yeah, I've never had a nail sticker. There's some pretty blue ones. Why don't you pick me out some blue ones? Yeah. What was your favorite part of motherhood? Laughing with my children. If you could give someone parenting advice, what would you say? Laugh with your children. <laughs> Take time. Take time. Don't be too busy. Don't don't be too busy. Because it doesn't matter. They see you even as adults. My grandchildren see me. My great-grandchildren see me. And they see what I do with my life. And so it's important that you live a life that's a good example for them. I've always loved young people. What do you want young people to know about getting older? Don't be afraid of it. Live it. But, you know, along with life comes some tears. I mean, I lost my husband in 19... 96, had a severe heart attack. We didn't think he was going to live. He was hospitalized in Erie for 11 weeks. 
And I went out to see him every day. And he survived. They didn't think he was going to. They didn't think they were even going to do surgery. But he survived. And so God used that time. He knew Gail had things to do yet. And so I retired, and we went to Florida. We went down about four or five years. And we met this couple right across from us, Ed and Henrietta. We found out they were from Eden, New York. Well, that's not very far from here, you know. And when you're in Florida, it's just like your next-door neighbor. So we did quite a bit with them, and we kept in touch with them during the summer. We, we had become good friends. He had so many health problems. It was just horrible. And in October, it's been nine years, 10-4-14, he passed away. And we took care of him at home for about six months and had hospice. Hard, hard time, very hard time. My house was just way too big and too much land and everything. And so I said, I just really want something smaller. Well, this place came up. And in the meantime, my oldest grandson had said all along that he would like to buy that house. We have this saying, if you want something, like if you want, want that rocking chair in there, you put your name on it. So Aaron always said, I've got my name on the house. So anyway, he bought my house. And then I moved up here eight years ago. And I love it. Well, I was here about a year or so. And the phone rang one day, and it was Ed, who was the couple that we had met from Eden, New York. With Gail being sick and everything going on, we just hadn't been in touch. Well, come to find out, his wife, honey, Henrietta, had passed away, and Gail was gone. And so he says, can I come down and see you? And I said, sure. So we kept coming down for quite a few years. So we just had the best, best friendship. I've never had a friend as good as he was. It was just wonderful because he could talk about Henrietta, his wife, and I could talk about Gail, and we just had the best time together. It was just such a blessing. But he passed away in, it'll be a year in October. You've lost a lot of people close to you. I didn't tell you about my son. My son died five years ago. Troy, my youngest one, he had a geoblastoma, which is a brain cancer. And they did surgery on him in Pittsburgh, 13-hour surgery. It was a nightmare for him and for all of us. That gave him two more years, and then he was gone. I lost my husband, and then I lost my two sisters, which losing my sisters took from me any source of memory or anything about my mother. So that was kind of a double loss then. So I lost both my sisters and then my son in four years. So it was hard, yeah. With your mother passing away so early in your life, you really knew loss your entire life. Yeah. How do you handle grief? Grief is something that you and I would go through it entirely different. There's different stages of grief, and the thing of it is, you don't go through the stages one, two, three, four, five. You might go through about one, five, four, three, two. You just don't know how you're going to go through it. And I think the thing that you need to recognize with grief is that it is grief, that you're not going bonkers. And I think support is one of the best things. That's why the grief support groups were so important. That's because you're learning that you're not the only one. What you're feeling is normal. 
my biggest support because of me personally, because of my beliefs, was the presence of God in my life. I want to know, what are you working on now? I have a Bible study that I lead, and then I have another one that I go to. I think what I'm working on now is my card ministry. I make greeting cards. I am just so blessed with those things. And they look pretty corny, some of them do, and you know, but I've had people say, oh, I save all your cards. And I knew that when I opened up a drawer in my husband's dresser, and there were all the cards in there that I had made him. And with Ed, the gentleman from Eden, I had sent him a lot of cards. He'd saved all of them. And my kids all say, oh, Mom, we got all your cards. I can't remember the last time I bought a card. Why do you think they saved them? Because there's none other one like it. I don't know. Because they know that it was made in love, probably. I hope that's what they feel. What do you wish for the rest of your life? What I'm thinking about more than anything else is that I don't want to be a burden to my children. They all are so wonderful to me. I just love my family. And for the rest of my life, I don't know. I just don't want to be a burden to them. When I go, I hope the Lord just says, okay, Joyce, this is it, curtains. (laughs) But if he doesn't, then I know he'll be with me through any hard times. I've had a wonderful life. I have. You know, I've had ups and downs, and you think about Oh, gosh, I've lost this and I've lost that. I mean, look at what I have now. I am so blessed that I'm 87 years old and able to have all this and to take care of it. That's the key, to take care of it. Do you think that there's anything to staying young? You can be old at 35. Don't forget there's a lot of life left to live. And how do you want to live that? You want to live it sitting in your chair? I have a terrible time finding people that will go walking with me at the Audubon because nobody walks. I've been blessed with good health. I mean, I've had some bumps on the road, but who doesn't? You know, life is good. I think on that note, we can wrap up this episode. Joyce, it was really nice getting to know you and hearing your stories today. I thank you for having us here. You're more than welcome. You're welcome to come back anytime without the camera and without the <laughs> mic. <laughs> Joyce's is always open. Thank you for listening to Manny's with Grannies. I hope you enjoyed learning about someone else and maybe even learned a little about yourself. <laughs>